Thanks, Joey and the worship team. We really appreciate your service. Good morning. My name is uh, Terry Plath, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ Redeemer Church. As, uh, as you may know, Pastor Brett, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical through uh, middle of, of August, and that's giving a few of us an opportunity to step into the pulpit here and get a chance to share God's word with you all. So uh, I'm excited about this opportunity. It's been about a year since I preached, so I've got about a year's worth of materials ready for you this morning. Uh, why are you laughing? No. Uh, I promise. I'll keep it to 60 minutes at the most. So... Um, now, with that said, though, let's, uh, let's bow our heads here and pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that this morning you would incline our hearts toward you. Uh, where our hearts are cold, I pray that you'd warm them. Uh, where our affections, Lord, are on things other than you, I pray that you would draw them to you. Uh, pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we can see you clearly. Restrain our, our flesh and the enemy uh, that would try to distract or dilute the word of God as it goes forth today. And finally, grant us understanding, O oh Lord. Our hearts and minds are dull and, and we're easily deceived without your pure instruction, Lord. So please help us to understand and apply your word to our lives today for your glory and for our joy. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Again, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'd be happy to give you one. You can either raise your hand and an usher will bring one to you, or else out on the uh, visitor information table we have uh, Bibles. Feel free to grab one and take it with you if you'd like. So again, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. On a hot July afternoon in 1967, a 17-year-old Maryland girl and her sister went to a beach on the Chesapeake Bay for a swim. The water was murky, and the teen didn't uh, bother to check the depth of the water as she hoisted herself onto a raft that was anchored offshore. She dove in and instantly felt her head hit something hard. Her neck snapped, and she felt a strange electric shock. Underwater and dazed, she felt herself floating and unable to, uh, to come up for air. Thankfully, her sister noticed her plight and quickly came to the rescue. When she pulled the girl out of the water, the teen saw that her arm was slung over her sister's shoulder, but she couldn't feel it. She knew then that something awful had happened. Later at the hospital, she learned that she had severed her spinal cord and would be left a quadriplegic the rest of her life. 
It was a devastating discovery for a young new Christian girl. Some of you may be familiar with this story. It's the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's one of my personal heroes of the faith, at least of our modern times. And Johnny uh, con- uh, continued her story in these words. She said, lying in the hospital, I recalled that just months earlier, I'd asked God to draw me closer to his side. And now stuck in bed, I wondered if paralysis was his idea of an answer to that prayer. If this was the way he treated new Christians, how could he ever be trusted with another prayer like this again? Obviously, God's ways were far different than mine. And for a long time, that idea both frightened and depressed me. But where else could I turn? To whom could I go? I remember praying, God, if I can't die, then show me how to live. For many days afterwards, I would sit in front of a Bible holding a mouth stick between my teeth, turning the pages of the Bible and praying that God would help me put together the puzzle pieces of my suffering. Johnny continues, an anchor verse for me is Deuteronomy 31.6, where God tells me, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. And she adds, do not be terrified of quadriplegia, of chronic pain, or even of cancer. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And I'm convinced a believer can endure any amount of suffering as long as he's convinced that God is with him in it. And we have the man of sorrows, the most God-forsaken man who ever lived, so that in turn he might say to us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. God wrote the book on suffering and he called it Jesus. This means God understands. He knows. He's with me. My diving accident really was an answer to that prayer, to be drawn closer to him. So Johnny concludes, For many years I've dealt with chronic pain, which is very unusual for a quadriplegic like me. Piled on top of my quadriplegia, at times it seemed too much for me to bear. So I went back and re-examined my original views on divine healing to see what more I could learn. And what I discovered was that God still reserves the right to heal or not to heal as he sees fit. And rather than trying to frantically escape the pain, I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary, where otherwise I would not naturally be inclined to go. So Johnny's story, her testimony, her faith, and her perseverance in that faith are a real encouragement to me. I mean, if she can deal with this, how much more can I deal with what God sends my way? I think it's easy for all of us uh, to give in to this worldly way of thinking that um, suffering and pain and weakness are to be avoided at all costs, and that there's nothing redemptive or beneficial about Um, trials or suffering or weakness. And even within the Christian church today, there's a strong movement born out of the prosperity of our modern day that would um, claim that God certainly would never choose to work through weakness and pain. And in fact, weakness and pain are a sign of his rejection of us and the weakness of faith. But God's word tells us that it's a sign of his working in us and a strength of faith. It tells us a different story. So as we look to our text today, 
the Apostle Paul has a really important lesson for us, one that we cannot be reminded of enough because it is so counter to the cultural air that we breathe today, both in modern-day America as well as in the Christian church. So I'd like to lay out for you right up front the main point of my message, which comes right from this passage, and it is this. We should accept, embrace, and even boast in our human weakness and afflictions rather than flee and fight against them because it is in and through these that God works the most powerfully in and through us. So let me repeat that one more time. We should accept, embrace, and even boast in our human weaknesses and afflictions rather than flee and fight against them because it is in and through these things that God works the most powerfully in and through us. Or as Paul put it at the end of his passage here, God's grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in weakness. So with that, let's go back to our text in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. And as we look back at these passages, I'd like to just spend a few minutes looking at the context from which Paul was writing this. Uh, this letter of Second Corinthians. So Paul's relationship with the Corinthians church was a, was a strained one. Um, he was the father, the planter of this church in Corinth, uh, the original pastor. He spent a couple of years uh, with the Corinthians. And you may recall from the uh, book of uh, the letter of First Corinthians that after having spent considerable time in Corinth, helping to start the church and disciple the leaders there, uh, he had to write to address some significant issues and rebuke some people in the church for significant issues they were having with sin in the church. Um, after that, Paul then sent Timothy to Corinth to check in on things, only to find out that the church was again in turmoil. Now, because of enemies of Paul who have come, and uh, people that he refers to in chapter 11 of, of the second letter of Corinthians as false apostles or servants of Satan who oppose him and his ministry stirring the Corinthian church to question Paul's ministry and, and apostleship. And if you've been here for Pastor Thomas's First Thessalonians messages these last few Sundays, it sounds very similar to what he was experiencing uh, in Thessalonica. Lots of opposition. So these um, false apostles were asking, how can this weak man who uh, actually you know, doesn't even say we need to be circumcised, People need to be circumcised to join the church. How can, how can he actually be preaching truth here? Um, how can the gospel that he proclaims be a true one when he's facing all this trial and opposition? I mean, if, if what he's preaching is true, shouldn't it all be um, you know, coming up roses for him here? And um, when Paul learns of this, he, uh, he decides to redirect his current journey and go back to Corinth to try to address and resolve these issues of, of these detractors that have come and are starting to sway the church. But his visit, unfortunately, turns out to be a painful one as he uh, experiences firsthand uh, this, the church's open rebellion against him. And if you read the second chapter of Second Corinthians, you'll, you'll see more about that. The false apostles say that his presence itself is contemptible. He's ugly, unimpressive. His speech is boring and uninteresting. They accuse him of lying about his credentials, that he was dishonest about his history and the success of his ministry. And unfortunately, many in the church in Corinth were swayed by these claims and are beginning to move away from him. So rather than retaliate while he's there and try to defend himself, Paul just decided it was best to suffer humiliation, and he leaves. 
Um, and it's from Macedonia then, uh, after this very difficult visit, and this being about a year or so after writing his first letter to the Corinthians, that he writes the second letter. And it's in, in anticipation of his third visit, he's going to come back to Corinth on his way to Jerusalem. So I give that background because I think it's important for us to understand that Paul knows suffering. He understands betrayal. He knows what it's like to be insulted publicly about your appearance, about your sincerity, about your ministry. He's well qualified to write, about, write the things that he writes to us here in verses 7 through 10. So let's look to the text then uh, to understand really three main things uh, about Paul's weakness or his trials. And I would just say the nice thing about these is they don't just apply to Paul. They, they apply to us today. And as we look at the text, I, I think there are three critical questions that we really need to ask and, and look for answers for in the text that will lead us to an application that I believe the Lord would have for us uh, from this passage. The first question is this. So what are these weaknesses that Paul is referring to when he says, for example, the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness? What are these weaknesses? Uh, the second question is, why was Paul experiencing these weaknesses? Was, uh, who, who was behind them? Was this from God? Was this from Satan? Was it from both? Uh, if so, how, how does that all work uh, if it's from both? And, and, and thirdly, how, how did Paul respond? Did Jesus, and how did Jesus respond to him? And in light of that, how are we to respond when we suffer these types of weaknesses? So let's begin with uh, exploring that first question. What exactly are these weaknesses? So when he says, my power is made perfect in weakness, and I will then boast all the more in my weakness, and then again in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses. First off, we know from verse 7 that there's a very specific weakness that Paul is experiencing. It's referred to by him as, as a thorn given to me in the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't specify exactly what that thorn is. But it's speculated, according to the ESV Study Bible, that it could be either some sort of psychological struggle, it could be this struggle that he has with his opponents, specifically. It could have been a physical malady, um, something poor eyesight or maybe an eye issue of some sort, or an issue with malaria or headaches. Uh, and finally, it could, could have been some direct demonic harassment. I mean, he refers to it as a messenger from Satan. Most scholars uh, opt to believe, though, that based on references in some of, all of Paul's other um, writings, that this was something physical and likely could have been something that was disfiguring to his face, so it made him uh, difficult to look at, actually, um, like a diseased eye, perhaps, something like that. So this is something Paul is dealing with as he's trying to perform this ministry that, that Jesus has called him to, um, which is really remarkable when you think about it and you think about what he accomplished in his years uh, of, of ministry. Further, though, in, in verse 10, uh, toward the end of the passage, Paul identifies four more of these weaknesses with which he is content to deal. One is insults. So when we think of insults, think specifically about things or ways that people might belittle or poke fun uh, using words to insult because of faith in Christ or decisions that have been made to live a righteous life. Hardships is the second. And uh, when we talk of hardships, you can think of them as, as circumstances perhaps that are thrust upon you 
places where it's really hard to be and which you'd seemingly done nothing to deserve. Uh, The third is persecutions. So here, these would be out-and-out abuses or wounds, painful circumstances or acts of prejudice against you simply because of your professing Christ and standing for righteousness. And finally, calamities. Uh, And calamities, you know, as we know from the word, is something serious and significant, um, challenges and circumstances that tend to overcome you and overwhelm you with stress, tension, and sadness. So it's interesting to note that, that these weaknesses that Paul lists, these are all things that are imposed upon him from outside forces, whether it be other people or it be circumstances. These aren't necessarily things that have come from within. So there's an inherent innocence here, I think, um, where Paul could have every right to be upset about these things and to lash out and to resist these things because this isn't something he's brought upon himself. So how can this be fair that he's suffering these things? These are not um, things from within. He's not talking of weaknesses in terms of personal weakness. He's not using it as a proxy for sin, for example, where we have a weakness for a certain sin. No, these are things thrust upon one for seemingly no logical reason, circumstances and situations that he and we would prefer not to experience if we had the ability to shed them. So now we have a better understanding of of the nature of these weaknesses that Paul is referring to here. So let's go on to the second question of, of the why. So why is Paul experiencing these weaknesses or trials? And who is behind them? Why, where are they coming from? And was God behind them? Was Satan behind them? Both behind them? If, if both, how can that possibly work? So first off, Paul clearly states that the reason for this particular thorn or weakness uh, is, is in verse 7. Let's read verse 7. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You know, it's interesting to note, and I don't think I ever picked this up before, that he mentions the to keep me from becoming conceited both at the beginning and the end of that particular verse. I mean, there's a real emphasis there on this concern around conceit. It's kind of like one of those puzzles you may have seen before where they break up a sentence into multiple lines and you're asked to pick out what's wrong with this sentence and they've repeated a word at the end of one line and the beginning of another line and most people won't pick that up. It's kind of what it's been to me, is that I never really noticed that. Uh, the purpose of this thorn is so important that it is stated twice, and it is to, ke- to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Or if we turn that around, we could also say, to keep me humble and not full of myself, or the privileges that I've received in God by him showing me these unbelievable re- revelations, I've got this thorn in my, in my flesh. And just real quick, early in, in chapter 12, Paul shares the fact that God had given him a supernatural experience where he was taken to the third heaven to witness things that he cannot even speak about. God did this to, to, to basically fortify his faith and to show him some revelations that would help to propel him forward in his ministry. So this is some special privilege that Paul has had. And he's saying, you know, God gave me this great thing, and now I have to suffer with this as a result of that, just to keep me humble. So it's interesting when we study this passage um, that it is similar. 
this situation that Paul had. It's similar to many others in the Bible. Think, for example, of, of Joseph, where you know, after he's been through his betrayal and sale into slavery by, at the hand of his brothers, uh, he's been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in prison for far longer than he should have been as an innocent man, then ultimately elevated to the number two man in all of Egypt, Pharaoh's right-hand man. He tells his brothers in Genesis 50, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today, as they are today. Or think of Job, who, after losing all of his wealth, all his riches, his herds, his children, his wife, even his health, at the hand of Satan, and I would point out that Satan had to go to God to ask for approval to do these things, by the way. Uh, he chooses to say this in Job one twenty one. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And of course, then we have Jesus, who was God's anointed. He was God's son, came to earth. Satan here had a plan to tempt and to try to discredit and to try to Bring, Satan, uh, bring Jesus uh, out of, of the mission, the calling to which he came to earth. But God had a plan that was greater than this. And that was ultimately to lift him up and exalt himself in and through Christ. But in all these cases, this path to being raised up, is, it's a hard, hard road. These attempts by Satan to bring evil and trials and death upon God's own people, but God yeah, still uh, having an overriding purpose to exalt himself and his chosen one in these situations, it's a really hard road, this path to exaltation. And it's a road that God mysteriously has allowed Satan to operate, though not outside God's power or authority. We can't fully understand this, but we have promises such as in God's word, and this is why God's word is so important that we be reminding ourselves of these things. Romans eight twenty eight. he works all things for the good of those who love him. All things. All means all, who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So Satan operates within this realm, God's realm. He cannot work outside of it. Certainly God does not and never has ordained evil, but likewise, there's no evil that takes place outside of his loving care. So back to this question of why and the source of these trials. I think it's clear that the trials and the weaknesses are to keep Paul and to keep us humble and to keep us pressing into the arms of Jesus, and not become conceited and self-reliant. You know, John uh, MacArthur signs, uh, sums up this why question really well. And so it's a bit of a long quote. So I'll read and then I'll tell you when the quote is ended. But I want to give MacArthur credit for this. So God's goal in the life of the believer is that believer's humility. Humility is the ultimate virtue. Pride is the ultimate sin. All other sins stem from pride. That's why Lucifer was thrown out of heaven. That's why Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Lucifer wanted to be like God. Eve wanted to be like God. Pride always leads the sin parade. The greatest sin is pride, whereas the noblest virtue is humility. To be poor in spirit, to not think more highly of oneself than we ought to think, to look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others, to have a humble mind, the humble mind of Christ, to consider others better than ourselves. This is necessary. This is the purest kind of spiritual attitude. And it all starts with being broken, with mourning, 
with hum- hungering and with humility. And Paul says so. He says that so many revelations would make him proud. He recognizes this in himself. So, and we can all identify with that, though we don't have these kinds of revelations that Paul had. When your life is blessed, when your life is enriched by the goodness of God, it is easy to look upon yourself as if you are especially favored by God because of some merit, because of some virtue, because of some faithfulness or some giftedness. Or, I might add, it's tempting to ignore God altogether. But since God is after humility, God humbled a man, Paul, who otherwise would have been proud, end quote. So with that understanding of the what and the why and the who behind these weaknesses and trials that Paul was experiencing, let's now look to his response that we might apply this response to our lives in our walk with Jesus. Uh, So first off, Paul's response was to pray. You note um, that in verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded, pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he turns to the Lord in prayer, and he pleads with the Lord to take it from him. And I think of several of the parables, as, as Pastor Brett has preached through Luke, I think of some of the parables that he has preached on, uh, parables such as the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Uh, the neighbor who goes to his neighbor's house looking for bread at midnight and won't stop knocking on the door until he gets an answer. We are encouraged and told to persist in prayer on things like this. And yet, uh, we are also called to be content with the answer that the Lord gives, which Paul demonstrates here. He asked three times, and then he did receive a very clear answer from Jesus. In verse 9, Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient to you, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So um, Paul understands that this is something that he is called to deal with. God has a reason for the suffering, and he's going to accept it, embrace it, and move on. I just want to stop for a second because I think this is such an important verse where, where in verse 9, this, this statement of my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus' grace is sufficient for us. And it can be easy to gloss over that and not really think through it. I mean, grace is not a concept we talk about much. I mean, it's certainly not talked about much in, in the world day to day. But I think it's important we park on this for a few minutes. So just back to John MacArthur, he, he says this about, about grace as it relates to verse 9. Uh, this word grace is a magnificent word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word charis, And it is used 155 times in the New Testament. It should be used frequently because we live in grace. It is grace below us, grace above us, before us, behind us, and beside us. It is grace in which we as Christians stand. This marvelous word refers to divine favor, unmerited, to divine blessing, to divine benefit, It refers to what God has given us in Christ, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because he willed to give it. And all of God's gifts to his children are given by grace. Everything we have in our salvation from beginning to end is by grace. We do not earn our justification. It is a gift of grace. We do not earn our sanctification. It is a gift of grace. We do not earn our our glorification. Certainly do not earn that. That is going to be the culminating act of grace through all eternity. It allows God to show us his everlasting grace. 
You know, in the book of uh, Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2, references made to the riches of God's grace, even to the surpassing riches of his grace. And this word surpassing uh, is hyperbalon in, in the Greek, which means hyper-super, hyper-super. This is to say it is an exceeding, abundant, lavish extension of his grace. All of this, of course, is in and through Jesus. One of the most wonderful statements about Jesus in all of Scripture is given to us by John in his Gospel, the first chapter, verse 14, where he says of the Lord Jesus, He was full of grace, full of grace, repeated. That wonderful fact is followed by an even more wonderful statement. It says, And of his fullness, all we have received grace upon grace. So grace is always spoken in terms of lavishness, of excess, of fullness, of richness, because we need so much of it. And God gives enough, more than enough, and the supply is never, ever diminished. From all that, you get this distinct idea that God does not skimp on grace. He doesn't dish it out in a miserly fashion. In all areas, his benevolent kindness is lavish as he dispenses his grace. You know, as I was meditating on this this concept, I just could not help but get the Uh, vision of uh, Niagara Falls, of a waterfall out of my mind, that his grace is like a waterfall. You think of Niagara Falls and the steadiness with which these volumes of water continually pour over, never-ending. There's never a pause in that. And that if you want to experience that, you've got to position yourself down under the falls. You've got to go. Um, And, you know, he makes that grace waterfall available to us. We just need to humble ourselves and on our knees ask him to pour that, that grace out on us and just humbly position ourselves beneath the flow. So um, we now move on to Paul's response, to Jesus' response to his prayer. And Paul's response is this. If you look at the second part of, of verse 9, Paul takes this statement by Jesus and he really embraces it. He says, therefore, in light of this truth, in light of this that that Jesus has told me, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. In effect, Paul is saying, man, if I can get more of God's grace through this weakness stuff, then give me more. Let me boast in it more. I want more of his grace and more of his power to rest on my life. So whatever it takes, give me more. And then he continues in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, not only will I boast in these trials, but I will choose to be content in them. I won't fight them. I will work to see God's hand in them and trust that he is working them for his glory and for my good. For weakness in the flesh means strength in Christ. So with that, let me just bring us back to that main point that I started out with. And that is this. We should accept, we should embrace, we should even boast in, rather than flee and fight, our human weakness and afflictions. Because it is precisely in and through these that God works most powerfully in and through us. So my question to you would just be, do we believe this? I mean, do we really believe that? I know that there are some of you that are going through the trial of your life right now. You didn't ask for this. But what will your response be? 
Let me suggest that you follow Paul's pattern. Pray. Ask for God to take it from you. That's that's okay. Um, But in the end, remember the words, Thy will be done. And take rest in God's goodness and his promise to work it all out for your good. Ask for his grace to bear up under the trial for as long as it's going to last. And look ahead in hope. Not even so much hope in this life as hope in the life to come. Now there are others of you that are in a time of relative peace and calm in your life. There are no trials uh, really to speak of. And I would just say, as I prepared this message, I feel like I'm in that, in that place, which can be a grace from God. It can also be a sign of disobedience, I think. If we're not pressing hard enough to actually put ourselves in a place where we might suffer some trial. So I think the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves and ask the Lord that. Lord, am I being disobedient? Should I be doing more? To put myself in positions where I might be insulted, where I might suffer some persecution. Um, But then, we should also, I think, take joy in it and staying humble, thank God for it. But I think, too, um, I can tend to minimize some of the little trials from day to day. You know, there's the little pebbles in the, in the, in the sandal, the, the birds under the saddle that get to you in life, and, man, this just isn't fair. Why do I have to deal with this? And uh, I think God wants to teach us through those little niggly things as well. Uh, pray. Ask him to take those things from us. But then be content. I mean, if he chooses not to, what is our attitude toward those things? Are we going to kick against the goats? Or are we going to accept and trust that God is going to use those things for our good? So in all these things, wherever you're at, I would just say we're called to be humble, to be quick and ready to boast in our weaknesses that Christ might receive the glory in our lives. We must decrease that he might increase, as John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. And I would just say, Lord, help us. Help us to bring these things to you in prayer, to seek your answers to be content and embrace our weakness in the face of trials, that your power might be made perfect in our weakness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are loved by and serve a God who is sovereign and who is unquestionably good and who promises to use all the circumstances in the life of his followers for our good and not for our harm. Please, Lord, where we're weak in our faith, strengthen us. Lord, where we're disobedient, Help us to be obedient. Pour out your grace upon us, Lord. Open that flow, that Niagara Fall flow upon us that we might have a supernatural God-powered resilience to bear up under suffering that demonstrates to the world around us that we are sustained by something of this, not of this world. And finally, Lord, help us to boast in our weaknesses. Give us humility in Christ and in him crucified. For your glory and for your joy, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.